So I had an insight recently that I figured I would share with all of you. Um, I had someone reach out via email who listens to this podcast uh, named Pan Pan, and he sent a really thoughtful email giving me feedback on uh, this podcast and on my interviewing style, which is immensely helpful for me. When any of you write and uh, give me feedback, it's it's a way that I can get better um, and improve the quality of this show. Uh, and he told me that he can really tell when I prepare for interviews and when I don't. And that's something that I can tell also. Um, when I go into a conversation with a few questions that I know I want to ask, with a few ideas of where I want to steer the conversation, um, I feel like I can provide more value and I really hate wasting your time. Um, and th- I-, I say that because there have been podcasts that I've done where I went in prepared. Um, the Peter Atia uh, interview is an example of that. And it felt after that conversation like it was a, um, a piece of media that I could then share for a long time to come. It was something that I was really proud of. And then there are conversations where um, I don't prepare, and there are moments when I get caught with my foot in my mouth, and then I have to think of my feet. And those ones, you know, they're, hopefully I can ride it out, and it's still good entertainment for all of you, but I know that they're not as good. Um, and with this conversation, I was looking forward to it for a while. Um, and Charles was nice enough to make time for me. Uh, and he told me, he said, Hey, um, all right, so I'm going to be at, uh, IONS, which is the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Um, and it's up in Petaluma. And I was driving up from Los Angeles. Uh, and I woke up at like 4am to go up to IONS, but I misread his email and he, and, and I thought he said, go up to IONS in Petaluma really he was about an hour and a half south of there in San Jose. So when I got to Petaluma after a seven-hour drive and said, hey, man, where are you? He said, uh, you went to the wrong place. So he was very nice about it. So then I had to drive an hour and a half south to meet him uh, at the IONS conference, which was at a Marriott hotel, and sat down kind of frantically, and we had the conversation um, and I just didn't feel like I did a very good job uh, preparing for the interview and steering the conversation in a great way. We got into some interesting stuff because Charles is so smart, um, but I didn't feel like it was my best work. And um, it kind of leads me to a larger question of, um, you know, what work is good work to put out there? Because there are different times in our life when um, it's good, to, I think, just to rapid fire, put out as much work as possible and throw a bunch of shit against the wall and see what sticks and fail quickly. And then there are other times when it's really important to prepare and be thoughtful about the decisions that we make and the content that we put out into the world. Um, and... I suppose that I realize that I have not recently been taking this podcast as seriously as I should um, because I have thousands of people listening and sometimes I just get sloppy uh, and I don't prepare. 
Um, and this was kind of one of those experiences where I was like, shit, man, I, it was kind of a missed opportunity. And then I got this email from Pan Pan, and he was like, you know, I can really tell the difference in the quality of your work when you prep and when you don't. So um, it was a good piece of constructive criticism, and it's something that I'm going to focus on more. Um, because when I, when I prep, I feel better about myself, and I feel like um, it just helps me grow, right? Um, so I guess showing up and treating every moment like it's the biggest moment of your life um, can be a very helpful thought exercise. And I think it's too often that we get caught in thinking that what we're doing is kind of small fries and then we'll change our bad habits when once we reach the big time. But that's, um, it's poor logic to use because if you are sloppy early on, then there's a high likelihood that you'll never reach the big time. So with whatever it is that you're doing, um, no matter how far you feel that you have to go, show up like it's the biggest day of your life because it is. Um, and this is all advice that I'm giving myself as well. So maybe we can all do that together tomorrow when we show up for whatever thing we're doing. We can show up and be a little bit more precise and take the moment with the gravity that it deserves. That said, um, Charles was a great guy, and I do think that you'll get some good insights out of this interview because he's such a big thinker. Um, and I just wish I would have prepped a little bit more. For those of you who don't know who he is, Charles Eisenstein is a public speaker, author, and advocate of gift economy. He wrote several books, including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, and Climate, A New Story. He's one of those big thinkers who I love talking to, uh, and we recorded this in his hotel room after I, in a very frazzled manner, <laughs> ran out of my car from an eight-hour drive. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Charles Eisenstein. And before I forget, huge thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals for, for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. These guys have believed in me from day one. Brendan, the founder of Santa Cruz Medicinals, uh, actually got me to start this podcast. He reached out to me on Facebook about four years ago, maybe five years ago now, and said, hey, man, you should start a podcast and and helped me get it done. Um, so the guys over at Santa Cruz Medicinals, are they're just great, and they are offering all of you 10% off on all of their CBD products. So you can type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, and get 10% off of all their potent CBD delivered right to your doorstep. And with that, please welcome to the show, Charles Eisenstein. Kyle Chairman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Welcome to the Kyle Chairman Show. Here we go. Sure. 
Let's get into it. Yeah, they um, they also. I don't know if you if you've seen Patagonia's um, latest camp campaign. It's called um, I believe it's called the Action Works camp campaign. So you can go onto their website and you type in your zip code, mm -hmm. and then you pick an issue that you care about. So whether it's like clean rivers or reforestation projects, um, they will connect you to a local nonprofit in that area, hmm. um, so you can get signed up. So it, it it's a really cool way to lower that barrier to entry for people that are like, okay, cool. What can I do with an extra hour a week? Mm -hmm. And they don't want to do that research themselves. Patagonia has already done that vetting. Uh -huh. and, and apparently it's been hugely successful. You have or organizations like Surfrider that have just seen this massive influx of new volunteers coming into their organizations. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in that because I'm writing and speaking a lot about earth repair, regeneration, and I want to offer people more than just information or, or I mean, what I'm offering isn't even, doesn't almost even qualify as information. It's just kind of big picture concepts. So I, I am thinking along the lines of, of how do I direct people to actually get their hands dirty? Yeah. Yeah. And making it as simple as possible. I think that, that sometimes, oh, I think sometimes we can be a little bit afraid to, uh, recommend one organization or mm -hmm. just like give the hammer hey this is a hammer this is how you use the hammer because we're afraid that it might not be the best right hammer but some kind of hammer is better than no hammer and i think that it's really easy to get lost in that kind of uh intellectual masturbation world and mm -hmm. then uh have analysis paralysis uh -huh. um so what uh well, well, let's start here um, I wrote some big picture questions for you on the way over here. I was like, I'm okay. talking to Charles Eisenstein. Here we go. Um, so let's get right into it. Uh, what would you say is a concept that you have learned that seems obvious to you that most people still don't believe? A concept that seems obvious to me that most people still don't believe I feel like when I mention these concepts, then people have a flash of recognition and that they do believe them. Uh, but maybe they don't know that they believe them until I say it. So perhaps one of them is that the crisis of our time, pick whatever one is most um, striking to you. It could be climate, ecology, politics, um, economic, whatever the crisis is, healthcare, that this isn't some little blip on the radar, some glitch that we can fix and continue the course of civilization's development as it has been, but that it is part of a wholesale transformation in society, in civilization, in what it is to be human, and that everything is going to change, and that, that this is something that we welcome on some level, even if we're afraid of collapse we're also kind of sick of this whole thing and that that we're ready for an initiation. So that's not an idea. I mean, I'm starting to hear it more than I, than I, than I had. I'm sure but, in the circles that you're in as well, people are you're yeah. kind of like a beacon for these ideas, which is nice that your ideas have seemed to have um, flowed out into the world enough now that you have people coming to you saying, yes, yeah. this is great. Right. You don't see it in the mainstream media. You're not going to see people talking about a civilizational initiation. But 
it is definitely a rising. Yeah. Not unless they got Russell Brand on Fox News every once in a while. Then you're like, wow, that was crazy. <laughs> Do they have Russell Brand on Fox oh, News? I don't know if he's ever been on Fox, but uh-huh. he'll go on some crazy rants every now and again. You're like, damn, Russell. Yeah. They're not going to let you back. <laughs> See, that's the good thing about comedy. Right. Like, it can get underneath people's defenses. Yeah. Yeah. So quickly. And then and then they, they don't really know what hit them. And, and even right. if they don't agree with what you say, if you can make them laugh, they have to mm-hmm. consider it and it implants an idea deep into their mind in a way that's very difficult to get rid of. You're right. And when you laugh together with somebody, you're establishing a commonality. Right. You're saying, well, we're both laughing together. So we're on the same team in a way. Like it establishes a connection that makes it hard to be defensive. Mm. Yeah. 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 Laughter is the shortest distance between two people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Y- you, we can get into a lot of the ideas that you talk about. Um, but I, w- I wanted to ask you about your method of communication. Um, because I know that you think a lot about how you communicate to people and how you can get those ideas deep into people's minds. Um, and people have different strengths and they lean on those strengths. And doing a podcast, I've seen certain people, they're just naturally funny. They naturally maybe will draw metaphors. There are certain people that use logic and reasoning and they take you down this path so that then at the end of it, they kind of shepherd you along to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a kind of a, a, a multi-parted spray paint of a question, but um, what kind of st- what styles of communication have resonated with you most, um, and what are you working on most now to implant those ideas that you care about deeper into people's minds? Hmm. I really don't know how to answer that. I think probably the the key to my kind of communication is honesty. If I'm clear about what I know and what I don't know, and I don't pretend to know something that I don't, then people will trust what I say, even if even if this is going on underneath the surface. Um, People today are really highly attuned to authenticity and really sick of the bullshit and the posturing and the hype and the spin and the optics. People want that. In fact, I think that that's part of the explanation for Donald Trump's success. Even when he's flat out lying, in some way, he's still very fully himself. So this is, it's not even a technique, you know, it's just presenting myself, here I am, and then at least what I'm saying has a certain truth because it's coming from from me. It's coming from who I am. Another thing, I guess I, I just try to um, put myself in the shoes of the listener like, and always asking the question, what is it like to be you? Like, what What is the what is the listener listening from? Who are they being? Who are you, like sitting here in front of me? What's your experience? What's your subjectivity? Because when I attune to that, then what I'm saying will speak to that rather than just having a bunch of prefabricated uh, 
gems that I've refined over time, and I'm just going to lay those out there, and it sounds pretty impressive, but am I actually speaking to you, or am I just reciting something and quoting myself? But if I'm actually speaking to you, then something that is beyond um, anything that, that I could prefabricate can come out that's the product of that moment, which is why I don't usually, if I'm public speaking, I don't use presentations and I don't write a speech in advance. <laughs> that's ballsy. Well, and sometimes it falls flat. <laughs> like this could be the worst podcast ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I'm speaking tomorrow morning, keynote speech. You know, I could go up there. I mean, this has happened before, like standing up there, you know, 500 people, 1,000 people out there. And I'm like, sometimes I'll have a pause of, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah, it's like that, it's yeah. like that scene in The Simpsons when it zooms inside Homer's brain and it's just a <laughs> monkey with tambourines. She's <laughs> And Marge is like, Homer, are you even listening to me? He's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, but usually, you know, usually, even if that happens, that is a transmission. Because how often does somebody get up there and allow that? Right. You know, and not fill in the silence with some bullshit. Mm. So... When you can really tell, too, like being someone who sits across from people and has these kinds of conversations often, I can tell in their eyes when they're talking to me and mm -hmm. when they're giving a canned response. Right. There's a really strange, subtle glaze that comes over people's eyes when they go into a canned response. It's almost like they become possessed for a moment by yep. a past self that's coming through them and they're no longer in the room. Yeah, possessed by a past self. That's a good explanation. Right? Yeah. And, and, but I think that also you can, like, the, I liked what you said about getting in touch more fully with who you are and moving inwards to then communicate outwards. And the you is always a verb, right? It's always shifting. So you're mm -hmm. getting in touch with a different self. I think that people talk about themselves as like this static noun. But like, I think one of the great kind of realizations that I've, that I understand intellectually and I'm starting to understand on some more intuitive level is that there is this completeness within you that you've always been, but you're always changing at the same time. And I think that that, that dichotomy and that paradox um, is important to understand because it's very often that we, and I'll bring it back into the real world, we're either speaking from a past self that is immovable and we cannot change that self or we are speaking from a place where we never feel fully enough and we're gravitating towards this future self that we don't feel complete in, right? Mm -hmm. But you're doing a really good dance in like, I can tell you're secure in yourself and in who you are, but you're also willing to change the way that you speak and you're not married to your ideas. Yeah. Maybe another way to put it, um, when you're saying that the self isn't this fixed static identity, you could also say that the self is the product of all of the relationships of that separate self. So who I am right now is different than I've ever been before because this is a unique relationship. Unless, and I could try to preserve the my idea of myself by not fully engaging in a new relationship with a, with whatever is coming into my field and stay or try to stay as I've been. But when the more I'm able, and I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm 
you know, a boundaryless person, but the more I'm able to open to what is new and present in this situation, then new material, like new information comes through because I'm a new person right now as the product of this interaction. Mm. I mean, I'm not trying to make it sound like, you know, some profound thing or anything, right. but but it is, I mean, it could just be as simple as who am I actually talking to here? Yeah, I well, I, I can relate to that um, hugely as a professional athlete um, because I think that a lot of pro athletes have this real um, grasping towards a past self. Mm-hmm. Um, and that past self in their prime tends to be a very young age and the way society is oriented is always towards that, that peak. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wonder, you know, I, and I want to bring this back into some, some of the larger concepts that you talk about so often. Um, see, this is what I do, man. I just flail into these kinds I of know, conversations, yeah. right? You like it? I woke up we at could, 4 like, a.m. this morning. We could spend the whole thing like, talking about this and never esoteric, get there. Esoteric, yeah. yeah. Time is a flat circle that yeah, right. <laughs> never ends up anywhere. Um, I'm going to switch directions, man. Whew. But thank you for playing along with me and holding my hand through these kinds of conversations. Um, one thing that I've heard you talk a lot about is the story of growth and domination. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about how that story is um, becoming less and less believable and more and more people are realizing that they're suffering from that story. Um, And you are talking a lot about the new story of humanity um, that we have a chance to move into. If you were talking to a young person who's been brought up with a lot of those old beliefs, um, what would you say is a more helpful story for them to orient towards as they're coming into this world? You know, let's say you're talking to someone who's in their mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. So the old story being, as you said, a story of domination, a story of separation, a story of how can I make a living? Uh, How can I make sure I have enough in this world and moving then into a story of participation of gift of 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 understanding that your purpose here is not to maximize your own self-interest. You can try that, but it's not a very satisfying life. In fact, you'll feel if you do try that that you're living the life that you're paid to live and not your own life. So the new story understands. It's like I was saying before that and you were saying too that the self is not this separate distinct discrete individual but that we are, that self is a participatory being, interdependent, interexistent even. So that, and when, when, when you understand that and embrace that and understand that what you do to the world automatically comes back inescapably to yourself in some form. It's not that necessarily that if you're violent to other people, people will be violent to you, but there will be an alienation, a cutoff, and maybe the result of being violent to other people is that you're lonely. Um, so so to, to embrace that inner knowing that 
I am here to participate in something magnificent and something that uniquely engages my uniqueness, uh, my unique gifts, my unique being. doesn't mean I have to be best at anything that I can name, but because I am a unique being, a unique nexus point in the matrix of relationships, I am the best at myself. And understanding then that there is an inconceivable intelligence that is coordinating this world that has created you for a reason, that you are perfect for the role that is laid out for you in this, in this lifetime. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the shorthand I, I like to use for the new and ancient story is interbeing. So it goes beyond interdependency or interconnection. Right. Just to, to say that my existence is part of your existence and the, the health of the world is part of my health. Yeah. A lot of people have those insights on psychedelics. Yeah. I mean, I think psychedelics have been a really important um, accelerator or uh, quickener of the... Uh, Evolution of consciousness. Right. Like the tree is yeah. talking to me. <laughs> the tree has never talked to me before. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that can be very helpful. Um, and I would say that, you know, a, a, a critique that people have of these alternative systems, alternative ways of thinking, is that they work great in small groups, but not great in larger groups, which I'm sure is a critique that you've heard many times before. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, we have a precedent for them working in small groups, right? Indigenous societies, um, villages. Um, but yeah, a mass civilization, civilization has been built on domination going back thousands of years to the earliest, earliest written records. They were, you know, very often about glorifying the draining of wetlands and the cutting down of forests and the slaying of lions. I mean, that's what civilization has been. It's been domestication. It's been to bring order to chaos, bring domestication to the wild, and to conquer the earth. And that was a good thing. It was considered a good thing. It was, it was almost inconceivable that humanity was here for another purpose in civilization. So we have no precedent. I mean, sometimes there's glimpses of another kind of civilization that could emerge, like certain golden eras of history. You, you, maybe there was like a, a different world surfaced into brief view and then was submerged again under the turmoil of events. But, so yeah, we haven't done it before, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible to do. We just have not yet found a way to translate the understandings of interbeing of gift, of the sacred, into a mass civilization. We don't have a, any precedent for a civilization that's not oriented around domination and control. But we can see it now coming up. Like all the things, all these buzzwords, you know, decentralization, um, the open source movement, um, gift economy, um, and and uh, the turn in agriculture toward not just extracting food from land, but um, regenerating land, healing land, and the whole ecological movement. I mean, there's a huge 
transition going on right now that, that points toward a different kind of civilization. Uh, but I don't have a blueprint for it. Right. Well, but, it, but I think that it also allows a different story to emerge in people's minds when they see something that's possible. That's what a mm-hmm. lot of people get when they go to a spot like Burning Man for a right. week is just this possibility that there is another way to do things. And Burning Man is far from sustainable um, and it's far from regenerative. But right. uh, but there's something there. There's something there. Yeah. yeah and, and I think yeah. that people can feel it. And when they feel it, it is a, it's uh, a feeling like they're coming home to something that feels very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think that uh, a lot of what you talk about regarding gratitude and gift economy is something that feels more natural to a lot of people. Um, would you, I, I liked what you said about open source. Would you classify open source information as a, like in the same vein as a gift economy? Yeah. I mean, open, open source is a gift economy. You know, you're, you're creating something and you're not exercising any mechanism for the benefits of that thing to come back to you. You're giving it away to the community. Benefits might come back to you, but it's not because you control it as with a copyright. And you can only use it if you pay me. Open source is a letting go. So I think it's a right. it's a prime example right. of and, and people recognize it as yeah, this is the future. It's it's a more efficient way to to build things. And it feels a lot better too. How is it more efficient if if we're playing in the game right now where cutting costs as much as possible allows you to beat the next guy, you know, um, shipping products overseas to be made um, by cheap labor gives you the edge against the next guy. How can a new company or a new story emerge and be competitive within this system? Yeah, it's not more efficient for for an existing, for an individual company in the current system. But as far as how fast it allows creativity to develop, it's way more efficient. I mean, let's look at all the things people do with with sampling in music, you know. Like, oh, that's a good example. Yeah, like it builds on itself so fast when you can pull memes and, and ideas and, and, you know, musical ideas together, images together. Like you can use everything that anybody's ever created now with, with the internet. Theoretically, you can unless we exercise intellectual control over these things and create artificial scarcity where there could be abundance. Hmm. What's an example of artificial scarcity? Artificial scarcity is digital rights management, uh, patents, copyrights. Artificial scarcity is that you have to pay for for movies that um, cost zero or almost zero to send you a new copy of it. Artificial scarcity, I mean, actually our entire society is dominated by artificial scarcity. It's most obvious in the digital realm, but in the material realm too. Like we have artificial scarcity of water. If we treated the, treated the land, the soil, and the water respectfully, the we wouldn't have these droughts and floods and water shortages. Water is the most abundant thing on this planet. We have artificial scarcity of of food. Uh, something like half the food is wasted. The biggest irrigated crop is lawn grass. In North America, I mean, we could have plenty of food. Artificial scarcity of of love, um, artificial scarcity of of beauty. 
You know, like here we're, we're doing this interview in Silicon Valley here, Santa Clara. You look out and, and it's this vista of these blocky corporate headquarters, one after another. You know, there's uh, McAfee, there's AMD, you know, there's Intel over there. It's like these, these are supposed to be like the, the wealthiest, most powerful organizations on the planet. And they can't even afford to make a building as beautiful as was normal 100 years ago. Like, I thought we were supposed to be rich. So, yeah, so it's, yeah. your, it's I think that that was a great, great answer. Um, and how we value certain, um, certain things as well. Like we just don't value beauty as, right. as much as we should, right? And, and there are certain, st- I think that kind of bringing it around to what we were talking about before is, is what are the value systems that we're bringing into the world right now? If it's just growth and domination, you're not going to value beauty uh, or interconnectedness nearly as much, right? Which when, you know, we'll take it back to psychedelics, uh, you can take psychedelics and that becomes a bigger part of the picture. You feel like, wait, you're missing it over here. There's a whole other aspect of life that's not being accounted for. Um, do you think that uh, initial shifts to this system would be more open source models and and redistribution of um, uh, redistribution of government funds into valuing uh, certain aspects of this world more, like beauty or yeah. So basically, uh, like what's, an, what's an example of that? Basically, the things that are not um, the. The things that are not valued in the current economic and social system are generally generally the things that you can't measure. Right. So beauty is something you can't measure. Um, another one's coming to me right now is is silence, or because we're hearing all this traffic noise out there, or maybe the sounds of nature. Like it's really hard to quantify the the benefit. You know, when you're in the woods and you hear. And dawn breaks and like the bird songs rise until they're surrounding you in a symphony. That does not have an easily quantifiable economic value. You can't make that into a commodity, into a good or a service. So if we have an economic system that drives growth, which we do, what does growth mean? Growth means the things that can be exchanged for money. It means, therefore, only the growth of things that are commodifiable, quantifiable, that can be made into products. So simply as a consequence of, an, of our economic system, we have the realm of the quantifiable growing and growing and growing, more and more floor space for these corporations out there, but the realm of the qualitative shrinking and therefore growing poverty of those things. So to say like, so, so then you ask, well, what could we do about that on a policy level? One thing which we talked about before we started recording was was some kind of universal basic income, which says, I trust you, like we're going to give you enough money to, to, to survive, and you don't even have to work for it. Because I trust that when you are supported in that way, you'll devote your life energy toward Whatever you're called to do, it could be things that do fit into the economic model that are quantifiable. Maybe you're going to, I don't know, grow food for people or something like that. But maybe your 
life energy will turn toward uh, reporting, recording podcasts or serving ecological healing somewhere. Uh, and in your case, that's kind of what it is. I mean, you're kind of the recipient of a, of a trial case of universal basic income because you get paid for surfing. So like you get to just enjoy life and it's not like you're, 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 you know, raking in the, yeah, I probably get paid as much as we would get paid with UBI, yeah, right. right? Or you gotta, you're you gotta hustle like, doing other stuff too. Right. But, right. but still like, you know, it's not like you're just sitting around drinking beer and playing world of Warcraft. Like, because as a human being, just like all beings out there, every single being in the ecosystem offers a gift to the rest of the ecosystem. They're not just like competing with each other, but they're giving to each other. Every tree out there is sending out all kinds of biochemical products through its roots, feeding the, the um, mycorrhizal fungi, which then feed back to the tree and to each other. I mean, it's just this incredibly complex gift web. Human beings are like that too. We want to step into our role as co-creative partners with life in service to life. And that is, and I think that's innate in us, but it's conflicted with the story that has been imposed upon us by, by I don't know, what do you want to call it? Capitalism, by civilization. And now what's happening on a broad scale is we're waking up to that. You, so one difference between UBI and my life is that when I tell you, um, oh, I get paid some money to surf from Patagonia, that is um, a kind of prestige that I'm, you know, Right. boasting about, right? Whereas UBI um, tells the story of who it, it, who is giving the money and who is getting the money, and it could tell the story of that you are lower class because you're receiving this kind of money. It's not, you wouldn't get the same prestige out of saying, oh, I get 15K yeah. a year from the government to do this. So one argument against universal basic income is that it... Um, segments people into this, I guess what the word, maybe class or, or version of themselves that would make them not think highly of themselves. And, and a potential solution to that would be like, um, instead of just giving people a check, it would be to, because I think what we're talking about here is, is bringing a, a rung onto the ladder so that you could start climbing up. And there are a lot of people that don't have that rung, right? So they're stuck. But creating a program where they could work to benefit themselves more, like let's say every 10 years we pay for you to take a year off and retrain yourself in a new skill. Or we're going to put a phone in everyone's pocket so that they can be connected. Um, do you think that that might be a better solution than simply doling out checks in terms of um, incentives and how people would see themselves and self-esteem? No. Why not? Well, for one thing, if the universe... So it has to be universal. Uh, otherwise, there is a self-esteem thing that, that comes up with, with uh, welfare, uh, where, where you know, when you're the recipient of aid, then you're stepping into an inferior position in relationship to the giver. But if everybody's receiving it, you know, like you're getting your fifteen thousand dollars a year, and so is um, uh, Bezos. 
you know, and so is Bill Gates. They're getting their 15000 Warren Buffett, he gets his $15,000 check, too. Everybody's equal. Yeah, but why should they get a 15000 Like, why should Jeff Bezos because, get a $15,000 check? Because it's everyone has a share in the uh, legacy of creativity of, of hundreds of generations of human beings that have made us able to be on this earth without having to work very hard anymore to produce the means of survival. And no one person should have a greater right to that than anybody else. The inventions of Archimedes, should one person benefit more from that than another? No, that's the collective inheritance of humanity. So that's basically your dividend check. That's, that's for me, that's the philosophical basis of it. And then as far as incentive, that comes down to a basic tenet of, of human nature, like uh, of belief. Do you think that you naturally, do you, do you need an incentive to work for healing in the environment, in marine ecosystems? Do you need an incentive, a self-interest? Do I have to say, well, you better do it or I'm not going to pay you? Some people believe that's true, that People will not work, they will not contribute to society or to anything beyond themselves unless they're forced to by the threat of physical deprivation. I don't believe that. Uh, that, that belief is a relic of selfish gene biology, of original sin, um, and it, it's also a product of the way humans behave when they're in oppressive, when in, they're in oppressive circumstances. Like, for example, industrial revolution, factory labor. Like, yeah, no one wants to do that kind of labor. But that doesn't mean that you're lazy. It means that you're rebelling against something that's contrary to the human spirit. So today, there's so much work out there that is not quantifiable or commodifiable that desperately needs to be done. And we need to support people in doing that. And also, as far as like conditioning the, the UBI, then you get um, the you're basically imposing the priorities of the state onto human beings, which sometimes might be a good thing. But I, in this time especially, I think that the perceptions of institutional power are way behind the times. And the people who are doing the best work, the, the most urgently needed work, are those who have to risk their financial security and sometimes even do illegal things in order to to serve life on earth. Mm, yeah, that's a yeah. good point. I, I absolutely agree with you that there are small organizations that are much more nimble and ahead of the times than large organizations. You could look at healthcare as an example. Like you could listen to a Ben Greenfield podcast, who's this great health health and longevity expert, and he's probably fifteen years ahead of most hospitals and mm-hmm. what they'll tell you to do. You know, and he's got this little podcast and his his world, but it makes him a lot more nimble to say things than if than the large Goliaths of the world. Um, so I want to just touch on UBI once more because you're a good person to talk to about this. Um, what would stop, if we start with $15,000, the next guy or gal then raising it to $25,000 to $35,000 and the bottom 51 just voting themselves the top 49 and uh, the U.S. falling into bankruptcy soon after and a socialist state. So it's the slippery slope argument. Um, yeah, there's no, 
there's no like algorithmic way to determine how much a UBI should be. This is fundamentally a political process. And um, you know, what to say what would stop that from happening? I mean, again, you're 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 getting into questions of human nature. And are people actually that uh, selfish? Um, so I don't know the answer to that question. Right. Yeah. Because I think that um, a lot of principles really work um, in in small groups, especially because they're like I bank with a local bank. And one of the reasons that I bank with a local bank is because I know the person that works at that local bank. So if they screw me on a $10 overdraft fee, I can go in there and be like, hey, mm-hmm. Lenny, what's up, man? Why Can I get that reversed, please? Because, hey, that doesn't happen often, and there's a real person there, right? So there's more accountability. And the smaller groups we live in, the more accountability there is. But when you go into larger and larger systems, you need to make the incentives be better and better for people. And I think that right now there are so many people, you can just look in in America alone, that feel very far away from each other. So I guess the question is, yeah, what what incentives could you uh, apply to a large-scale system that would make everyone act in the best possible interest for themselves and others? Um, And like there's there's a quote... Um, by a guy named Naval Ravikant, who was talking about that. You know Naval Ravikant, and he's and and he was saying, uh, he said, "With my family, I am a communist. With my friends, I'm a socialist. With the nation, um, I'm a libertarian." And he was he was quoting another person, but it was a question of incentives. Where when you have small scale groups you don't need the incentives to be nearly as good because there's the accountability. But when you broaden out, you need to set up levers for the incentives to be um, as good as possible. Yeah. Kyle Flaylin, flailing his way into no, these I'm aware big of, conversations. I'm aware of that, aware of that argument, right. and I might just question the premises. Is, is it true, always, is it always true that people need an incentive to engage in pro-social behavior? Or is it true sometimes that people do altruistic things, even for total strangers, uh, without ever getting any personal benefit. And if that ever happens, then we have to ask, why does that happen? What are the conditions for people to expand their their altruism beyond just themselves and their family and their circle of friends? So you could say that, that uh, criminal penalties and financial incentives are one way to socialize this kind of uh, pro-social behavior. Which is what we do now. Which is what we do now. It's a good way to put it. Right. But that's, that, that is based on a certain view of human nature, as I've said, that fundamentally human beings seek to maximize rational self-interest. So we leverage that. But there are other ways to see human beings. What if we understand human beings as, as carrying a deep yearning to express their gifts magnificently and to be recognized for that? Maybe recognition could be a new kind of incentive where recognition isn't only that you get some kind of ego benefit and social benefit and social dominance, but it's also a resonance between 
who you want to be and how people see you that you're actually tapping into other people's view of you as a uh, as a lodestar that keeps you oriented toward progress toward the highest expression of yourself because people recognize when you are being magnificent so this whole our, our perceptions of the world are so colored by the by the mindset of modernity that goes back to the things I mentioned, you know, original sin and and the the selfish gene and the basic idea that we are we are fundamentally biologically bad and that goodness comes through overcoming, conquering, and transcending nature, including our own nature. This is a deep, deep meme in civilization. And it points to the magnitude of the revolution or the transformation that is necessary to have a fundamentally different society. It's not something that can be changed by some technological tweak to the system. It's foundational. So when we overthrow the premise of our innate badness, our fundamental selfishness, and see that there, are, not that, that, that that possibility is not there, but we say what circumstances bring that forth and what circumstances bring forth other parts of human nature that you might see in um, tribal societies, in village societies, where people get their security in the world through their generosity, not through hoarding and control. How do we create conditions for that? And, and can we... So we're kind of bootstrapping ourselves into that because in order to implement a system like that, you have to have some kind of belief that there is that in human beings. From that belief, then it makes sense to set up systems to bring that forth. Otherwise, it's, it's a delusion. You know, People are just going to take advantage of it. If you don't carry that knowledge of this other aspect of human nature, then those arguments that people would just take advantage of it, the slippery slope arguments, all that stuff, free riders, um, those arguments are incontrovertible. Mm. So it really depends on, this is part of the, the, the metamorphosis. It's in the way that we see ourselves and the world and to recognize this emergent, it's always been there actually. It's just been suppressed, but it's always been there. The, the relational, altruistic self that wants nothing more than to do something beautiful with his life. Mm. Yeah, uh, here, here, and I think that you know, pragmatically, ways that we can set up our lives to induce better behaviors in ourselves and better habits are very important along the way. Um, one guy who I'm a big fan of is named Tristan Harris. He does. Um, time well spent. He, he's mm -hmm. known as like the moral compass of Silicon Valley. And uh, he has a great line about how social media is um, in this attention economy, right? Mm -hmm. And they've, they're doing everything they can to get you to stay on site as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like Vegas. Like Vegas is doing everything they can to keep you in the casinos to spend mm -hmm. as much money as possible. Right. But we've set up in our society to make sure that there's there's just Vegas. There's Vegas and Reno, but we also have Yosemite, and we also have Big Sur. But the way that we've set up the digital landscape is Vegas everywhere. 
right? So setting it up to, and and those kinds of um, those kinds of environments uh, tend to create a certain um, set of behaviors that are not good, right? In us, so. I think that a stepping stone along the lines of creating a world where we get to know ourselves better in those um, forms of altruism would be to, yeah, set up societies that are more regular, that are more oriented towards beauty, and even in the digital space, so that we can think those thoughts more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how do we do that? Like, I'm not even sure if like use the phrase set up a society, but that's not how societies form. No one sets them up. Mm. So this whole idea that if that we need to hack the design principles of society and, and come up with a more rational one that is calculated to bring more altruism, that's kind of a fantasy world. Really the question we have to ask is how can we participate in the emergence of such a society? What, am I called to do in partnership with that possibility? And that is actually easier because it doesn't depend on having a plan to get there. All, all, or on, it doesn't depend on any human being be able to, being able to articulate um, a comprehensive plan for the transformation of society. Which I have, by the way. Just, just give me. Yeah, every every male me. every male person has one of those. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. it's called mansplaining. Right. We even have a term but, but for it. But there's, but then there, but on another level, we can recognize that there actually is a plan, and when we are participating in that plan, we can feel it, and it's the feeling of, I'm doing what I'm here to do. Where I'm called to do it, I'm in the flow, and I have a feeling of significance and meaning to what I do. And maybe this is a learning process, that that the feeling of significance and meaning can be all wrapped up in self-importance, for example. And over the course of a lifetime, we learn to distinguish what is serving my self-importance and what is the genuine feedback from the world or its coordinating intelligence that says, yeah, you're doing the right thing right now. There's no shortcut to distinguish those things, but to point to that entanglement already helps the process of disentangling those conflicting motivations. Do you have? I was just wondering if that was too abstract, but um, I wanted to. Yeah, I will. I, I wanted to uh, lob it into a real world example. Um, as well as talk about a few of the stickier situations that I don't think will reemerge in a beautiful way, such as the banking system. I know mm-hmm. that you're a fan of Matt Taibbi, as am I, and mm-hmm. the, the level of corruption and bad incentives and lying that is going on in that world and creating an enormous amount of suffering for people. I, I don't see reemerging in some beautiful way from from the people working at those banks having some psycho-spiritual revolution. Well, even if they do have a psycho-spiritual revolution, which does happen to people in banks... I did ayahuasca. They're like, you're fired. Totally. (laughs) They do ayahuasca, and they don't get fired because when they go back into the bank after their week week in Peru, they, they go back into the bank, they put on their suit, they step into that cubicle. They're totally in that environment. 
the, the state of consciousness of a banker is enforced by the environment, the social and physical environment that they're in. You almost can't maintain, in fact, not almost, you cannot maintain a different consciousness when you're in that in those circumstances. So the consciousness that they experienced in Peru, it recedes. It's still there somewhere, and, it, and it's working them from the inside. But even if every single person in every bank in the world had a, a mind-blowing psychedelic experience and communicated, communed with, with the, the spirit of Gaia, the banking system still wouldn't change once they went back to work, because there's nothing else that they can do in that system except to discharge its duties. That said, one of my mottos is that every institution of our culture has a reincarnation, like the same note at a higher octave. There's something that it wants to be. Banking is no exception. I even told this to a banker once. I said, really, the future of banking in a more beautiful world is that someone comes and says, I've got more money than I know what to do with right now in this time of my life. And I'm so busy doing what I love that I don't even have time to give it away in a good way. So I know you're good at that. Uh, here, I don't need this. Give it to somebody else who can use it for a while. And then maybe when I am get old or if I'm sick or something and I need it again, then um, I'll, I'll use it. But right now I'm not using it. Find somebody to use it. That's called a loan. Find somebody to use it. And a banker is somebody who's really good at, at recognizing who can use it the most beautifully, who could use it the, really well. He's an expert in that, somebody who's, who's drawn to that line of work. That is the higher incarnation of banking. And I told a banker this once, and tears came to his eyes. Like, there is a soul of banking. Now, as you said, the, the body of banking is incredibly sick. It's corrupt, so that the soul lives a very lonely existence inside that institutional body. But we have to recognize, and this is the same as when we're working with a human being and being an ally to their transformation, we have to see the seed of what they want to be. If we write somebody off and dehumanize them and, or even are just unable to see through the fog of judgment who they can be, who they want to become, then we are actually the ally of them not transforming. Right. Yeah, you've you, you talked to enough minorities and people of color who have been treated a certain way their whole lives, and then they say, well, I started to act that way because that's what society expected right. of me. Right. The invitation, the, the story we hold about somebody is an invitation for them to be that story. Same thing with society. Same thing with the world. And that doesn't mean that you can pretend to see something different than the worst in somebody. But if we start looking for it, then we eventually will see it. Right. So what you described in the banking system was very interesting. And it's similar to what we do now in the sense that you put your money into the bank. Yep. That money doesn't stay there. That money's uh, multiplied through fractional res reserve lending and then lent out. But it's lent out through the prism of who can we give this to, or who can, who can we lend this to who we think has the greatest chance of um, raising capital or having a having successful business with that? You know, that's a small right. business loan. So is your idea of a higher incarnation within the banking system just that you take more 
factors of success into account when you're making those loans? It's basically the question of who's going to put it to the most beautiful use. Mm. Today, most beautiful use, instead of that, it's who's going to maximize uh, financial returns is fundamentally how the system works. That's where investment goes. It's to who's going to maximize financial returns. And the kinds of activities that maximize financial returns depend on... Um, basically, it's how much of nature can you convert into products and how much of community can you convert into services? How much of relationship can you professionalize and monetize? So we don't have a, a system that even recognizes or thinks in terms of what's beautiful or what's healing. But we could... Because money is a story. It's a system of agreements. And we can make other agreements about what we hold valuable. And we could associate those with money. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than that, actually. I mean, I think all, some of what I speak and write about is, is the necessity for a degrowth economy so that the money realm shrinks altogether. But in that process, we can hold valuable activities that don't produce salable goods and services but that we want to start valuing nonetheless. And, to, and so for the, the banker, you know, the, in this, in this um, aspirational world, the banker is somebody who recognizes those uses and embodies, has really digested society's shifting values toward the healing of the earth. Can you imagine if banks were like, man, you know, Matt Taibbi's really shining a good light on this whole system. Let's give him some money to keep doing his work. He should be paid more for this. You know, we need more investigative journalists that mm -hmm. are really calling out the bad bankers within this system. That would be cool. Yeah. I would love my money to be going towards investigative journalists. That'd be great. Because right now it's all, it's a defunded industry and we don't have yeah. nearly as many as we should. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, I think one of the most powerful transformative uh technologies, if you will, is simply the, uh, to make things visible that were not visible, which is what Matt Taibbi does. But, I mean, that's what journalism is supposed to do, to bring things into public visibility that you wouldn't otherwise find out about. Right. To show us ourselves. Mm. To show us ourselves. That's an interesting way. Right. Whereas mainstream it. media, like fake journalism, their job is to present us with a spectacle that insulates us from reality that allows us to continue a world-destroying machine uh, without even recognizing what we're doing. So it's to hypnotize us. But, but the real journalist is somebody who pierces the veil and shows us the reality underneath the images. Hmm. And g give me an example of a spectacle journalist versus a real journalist that's showing us ourselves. I mean, you mentioned... Taibi is a real investigative one, but, yeah. but what's the difference in communication style and the way that the story will be told? Well, the fake journalists, basically, they know what they're supposed to say. Uh, they get their, their talking points from uh, governments, usually, and corporations, and even without any direct censorship, they know what's rewarded, what's considered serious, what you know, gets them in the door. Uh, and what will get them kicked out. And so they uh, amplify the propaganda 
that is used to, for example, manufacture consent for a war. So anything that fits that narrative gets amplified. Anything that doesn't fit that narrative uh, gets ridiculed and, and suppressed. So, I mean, we could talk about... Um, I mean, it's a pretty dated example, but, you know, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, that the claims were never subjected to much scrutiny uh, because everybody knew that this was the story that needed to be told in order for the war machine to kick into high gear. It was never true. Right. But it, but it certainly wasn't the story of people's history of the United States, which didn't show us as the good guys. So right. I guess that's what you're talking about, is, is stories where you're not necessarily seen as the uh, golden knight on top of the horse, but you get to see yourself and your society um, as not always the protagonist. Yeah, so one of the stories is America, the hero nation. Right. And, and a true journalist would present information that doesn't fit that storyline. The fake journalists... They will. They they're conspiring to maintain that storyline. So, you know, they'll talk night and day about human rights abuses in Iran, or Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, bigotry against gay people, but not so much about the U.S. fomented coup in Honduras that's been generating refugees ever since 2008 or not very much about uh, how the CIA cultivated uh, uh, Gaido in, in Venezuela uh, for many years and economically sabotaged the, the country because they were, um, you know, resisting U.S. hegemony. Sure. Like, like you don't hear the things that violate the storyline. Hmm. Except from the real journalists. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, that's a very good example. Um, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit because I just wanted to ask you about this as a concept through the the prism that you look at the world through. Um, what do you think of the concept of taxation? Well, you have to be more specific. There's, there's so yeah. yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I I. Uh, so, uh, free market um, capitalists in on on the far right will say that um, taxation is theft, and taxation is the um, is the act of um, creating violence against me for the wealth that I have gained. Yeah. Um, People further on the left will say that there's a social contract that you were born into and we all use taxes to get our society to run. Um, and do you see taxation in um, do you see taxation in a world where there would be a, a, a gift economy and and in this higher vibration that you talk about, let's say that we're living in it where we're more oriented towards beauty. Um, the banks are giving loans to people that are doing really good work in the world on all levels. We value uh, the system more holistically. Um, regeneration is valued more. Do you see taxation as a part of that system? Yeah. Well, there has to be some way to 
organize our collective creativity and our collective labor towards something that we socially agree on as desirable. So to, to coalesce those resources, um, you could call it taxation or you could call it something else, but there has to be some way to, to, to cohere our, our creative force. Um, I, you know, I wrote about taxation a bit in Sacred Economics, which is a book I wrote a number of years ago. Uh, a lot of the book is about kind of gift economics, but there's also a lot, a lot about um, money, um, debt, interest, taxation, um, some about UBI, some about, um, yeah, one of, the, one of the proposals I talk about is negative interest, which fundamentally is a tax on money itself, not a tax on income. And in the book, I actually said we could probably do away with an income tax, which always felt to me to be a little bit unfair, actually. This might be one place where I might be in agreement with libertarians. Um, but money, it's, and this is a more general principle, like when you say, well, I earned it, you know, why should society take from it? Well, your ability to earn it depends on society. Property doesn't make sense without other people. It's not like something that's actually attached to you. What actually makes it property is a social agreement. What, what makes even gold valuable is that other people hold it as valuable. What makes your gifts valuable is that it's part of a whole matrix of, of productivity, of specialization. It's only valuable in that context. So it's not really yours. The value of your things depends, the value of your contributions depends on everybody else making their contributions in some kind of social agreement. Mm. Uh, and money is no exception. Money is only valuable because people agree that it's valuable. So, you're, so basically, you could say that, that because its value is a social function, that you should not be able to profit just by owning it. The same with, with land. And this is what Henry George uh, thought about in the in the late nineteenth century that you shouldn't be able to uh, financially profit by the mere ownership of land. You should have to use it well. And same thing with money. So currently, we have a system that if you have enough money, then you'll get richer and richer, which is okay in a growing economy because the economy's hopefully growing faster than the wealthy class's wealth is growing so everybody else can benefit too. But today we don't have a growing economy. We have, we have so, so the, the economic growth is, is, is slowing down and stagnating globally, and it depends on how you do the statistics, but you could argue that we don't even have economic growth anymore, which means that if the wealthier are going to continue to get wealthier, that means everybody else is going to have to get poorer. Hmm. So... Basically, negative interest, which is, is, is kind of a tax on money that says that it, it's almost, or you could even say it's the rent that you're paying society to have control of this resource. So it's not, it's not unlike owning uh, items, right? Like, right. Like is, if I buy a TV, that TV is going to be worth less in four right. years. Right, right, and that's another that's another aspect of this that that is, is it's 
it's to make money like everything else in the world so that it's no longer an exception to ecological principles of decay. Hmm. Everything else in the, in the material world changes over time. It, it, it grows, it, it becomes strong, then it has a steady state, and then it decays, and it, and it dies, and it becomes food for something else. Nature goes in cycles. But money, as it is constituted today, seems to violate those cycles, leading people to think that if only they had enough money, they would be immortal and to associate their identity with their money, their security, their basic existential security with money, as if they could live forever with enough of it. And of course, that's a delusion. We know that on some level that it's a delusion, but people in the pursuit of money act as if they were never going to die and sacrifice the things that are truly precious for money, and it's because of that illusion. If money were... were like everything else in life that is impermanent, then we would not be so susceptible to that delusion. Mm. We might be a little uh, less afraid of death too. Yeah, right. And again, this is part of a, of a huge transformation that includes our understanding of death and our understanding of who we are. The, the fear of death that is threaded through our culture, the denial of it, which comes from the fear of it, is based on who we think we are. If you think that you are a separate self uh, in a world of other, then when that separate self dies, it's like a candle flame is snuffed out and you're gone. So that fear is related to the fear that drives accumulation and greed. It's the, it comes from the wound of separation. Mm. I heard a good quote, which is, uh, every person lives two lives and their second begins when they realize they only have one. Uh-huh. Kind of like that one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and our society prevents that second from ever happening. How so? Just through the denial of death, through the um, worship of youth, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah, you see, I was just down in L.A., man, and you see a lot of women in their 50s and 60s, and it's like they're they're just chasing something that's receding away from them mm-hmm. in a way that um, seems, it, it, you can just tell the it's very unhealthy and it becomes more and more apparent as we get older, as we try and chase a lot of these systems that really aren't working or work for us for a very short amount of time. And then it's kind of like trying to get high again and again, and mm-hmm. you can never really get back to that same first high. Right. But yeah. No matter you know how many facelifts you get and how many Pilates classes you do, you're just not going to be 22 again. No. You know? <laughs> You'll be a tw- kind of alien looking at 60, but you know, you'll be maybe it's weird. Yeah. It's a strange thing when like, you know, I've heard you talk also about how like this system would work if the ultra wealthy were really happy, but they're not, you know, or yeah, if people, right. or if people even valued beauty in that way. Like, I don't know many people that, that look at a 60 year old woman who has just had, or, or dude, anyone who's just had insane amounts of plastic surgery. And they're like, damn, that's hot. <laughs> that's the one who I want. Right. Like we value, um, grace and wisdom. And when we meet people that embody that in some way, it becomes magnetic, which I think speaks to um, a lot of the work that you're doing, which is which is that we 
um, inherently know on some deep level where to go. And when we see these little bright spots, we gravitate towards them. You know, you, I, I have a buddy named uh, named Simon who's who's a kind of famous uh, rapper entertainer, and he just called me yesterday he's like dude i've been working on a farm for the last three days like i've been getting my hands dirty mm-hmm. i milked a goat like i could hear it in his voice like he was yeah. coming back to a space that he was that he needed so deeply it was like eating something really nourishing and uh it's it's fun when you see people come back into alignment with that even for a second i think that mm-hmm. that's that's what life's all about and that's when you can um start to really goes back to what we were first talking about, begin to learn, uh, know yourself, right? And you have these kinds of experiences that push you towards the edge of your threshold. And that's when you really find, yeah. find out about yourself. And they expand, they expand the scope of what you know to be real. Right. And then you go back to the old reality and it's not quite so real anymore because you know there's something else out there. Mm. And, th- and that especially happens when, when, a calamity or a crisis hits. I was up in, uh, in Lake County, uh, which is in the last four years, half the county's burned. And, you know, some people still are thinking in terms of rebuild and make things back the way that they used to be, make America great again. But a lot of people are questioning that and noticing that sometimes even literally they go back to their house that was burned to ashes and they see, you know, some objects that didn't get burned and they're like, maybe I don't even want that anymore. You know, it burned away like the burning, the burning of the, the whole illusion um, reveals what is actually precious and what isn't. And they no longer want to go back to that. And that realization wouldn't have happened without without the fire, and and the same thing happens, you know, when some aspect of our lives burns down or disintegrates. And like part of us, like yeah, I want to go back to the way things were, but then on another level, you might feel grateful that it fell apart, and even to suspect that on an unconscious level, I engineered that because I was done with it, I was ready for the whole thing to burn down because I wanted to be free. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've heard you talk about, uh, um, obviously we've been talking about death a lot. Do you have any thoughts on what happens to us when we die? Uh, I mean, I have lots of thoughts about it, but I've not had that experience. So... I'm fascinated by people who have had that experience and the reports that they give. Um, but, you know, I remember when I was five, six, seven years old, I can remember how exactly old I was, but when I was, when I first really took in my culture's teaching about death, uh, you know, I was raised as an atheist, um, very scientific family. And so when I finally, when I really got that, that it was the total annihilation of, of the self, of all existence, basically, like that, just the snuffing out of a candle, blankness, uh, I was so horrified that I just, I couldn't even sleep. I was just gripped by this dread that, that 
sent ripples, ripples, it like threaded my whole life with anxiety because how can you ever be fully comfortable and okay when you know that in your future is, is uh, like a final struggle to stay alive followed by a total annihilation. So I, mean, I guess, you know, in one way, a lot of my life has been healing from that teaching because that's a teaching. It's a story. Most people did not believe that. We just think that our story, our mythology, has superseded all those that came before it and is an advancement of knowledge above what people believed in the past. But that's a very arrogant, you know, culturally self-congratulatory view to think that we are the pinnacle of human knowledge and that everybody else needs to get along, get on the program and be like us. That's the mindset of colonialism and imperialism. And just as colonialism and imperialism are coming into question now, and the benefits even to ourselves are, are increasingly dubious, so also this, the, the, the whole uh, ideological apparatus that surrounded it um, including the scientific worldview that I grew up in, is also coming under, un, into doubt. Mm. And so these experiences, these near-death experiences people have, mystical experiences, they are coming at a, at a perfect moment into our consciousness as the um, mythological structure of society is also falling apart. It's burning up. So we have, we're getting like pushed out of the old story into this bewildered, scary place where we don't know what's real anymore. And at the same time, we're getting invited into a beautiful world through mystical experiences or through putting our hands in the soil, uh, through experiencing community, through experiencing healing. There's a push and a pull. And right now, many of us individually and as a, as a society, we're in this transition between worlds. Here, here, man. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. We've been going for over an hour, and mm. uh, I know that you've got a busy next couple days um, coming up. But uh, just last question, are you working on any writing right now that you're especially excited about or any ideas in, gen in general that you're chewing on or are especially present for you? Um, well, I, I've been writing about um, political polarization a bit. Um, and we just put out an uh, online course on metaphysics. And uh, yeah, I'm still really, um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about what, what, what my next step is in, like I wrote a book on climate change, climate, a new story which is, I'll just say that it doesn't say what you think it says. Um, and it also doesn't say the opposite of what you think it says. Well, that's a riddle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I I'm, need to read it. <laughs> I'm going to put some energy behind that too. Cool. Yeah. Great, man. Well, thank you so much. And uh, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Uh, my website, charleseisenstein.something.org, I guess. All right. Charles yeah. Eisenstein, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. 
That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Sailor's Wife by Becca. And this is my sister. So I hope you enjoy the song. And if any of you are musicians and you want to send me music, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can email feedback on this show, uh, recommendations for new guests, or even those groovy little voice memos. So if you're out on top of a mountain or in a coal mine or out surfing and happen to have your phone on you with one of those crazy waterproof cases you can use the voice memos app on your phone record a few seconds of audio just try and keep it under about 90 seconds and let me know who you are where you're listening from and i'll play it at the beginning of the show once again thank you to santa cruz medicinals for sponsoring this podcast you can go to scmedicinals.com type in the code name kyle 10 for 10 percent off all products and if you love 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 this podcast you can head over to my website kyle.surf and donate a few bucks on patreon even just the amount of like a cup of coffee a month really does help if all of you guys wanted to buy me a cup of coffee every month i would never have to ask for another donation ever again uh and kyle.surf is where you can check out my blog and sign up for my weekly newsletter where i send you a short story that i write as well as recommendations for cool podcasts and documentaries that i have been uh absorbing every week that's it and I hope you enjoy this song by Becca Davis, my big sister. Uh, the song is called The Sailor's Wife. See you soon. And thanks for listening.
Let the sailor frown the ocean blue. I traced the stars and found my way to you. I never saw a light that shone so true. She'd been 